0: Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. We're glad you're able to be with us this morning. And today we want to continue our study in the Gospel of John. And we come to a passage this morning that we would normally um, only encounter on what we call Palm Sunday. This is the, the account of the, the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. And one of the reasons, and I've told you this before, but one of the reasons I enjoy studying through a book is that you just take the next passage that comes you know, it's not Palm Sunday, but that doesn't mean that this passage doesn't have a lot of great things for us to consider this morning. And so today we want to look at the fact that Jesus, we've been asking the question, who is this Jesus through our study? And today we want to answer that question John says, he is the king of Israel. And so, i have entitled the message, The King of Israel. We're going to look at verses 12 through 50, far more than just the triumphal entry, which is the verses 12 through 19. And that's all we're going to read for for right now, verses 12 through 19. We'll kind of break it up a little bit this morning. But it says, the next day, uh, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's our phrase, the king of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called at Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the peace people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know, when I was a little, little boy, and some of you are from Frostburg, and so you might remember that, uh, there was a suspense centennial or something. I don't know whether it was 150 years or 125 years celebration of the town of Frostburg. And they had a big parade. And I have pictures of We have pictures of it. Our family has pictures of it. And that was the first time I ever saw the guys driving the little cars, the, the Shriners or whatever like that. As a little kid, I got to tell you. I wanted to drive those cars. You know, I wanted to grow up to be able to drive those cars. Well, that's never happened, and I don't think it ever will happen. But I have had the privilege of, privilege I guess is the word you can use, of being in a number of parades throughout my life. Uh, One of them, the very first one I was ever in was in the city of Frostburg, that booming metropolis of Frostburg. It was, I don't know whether it was a 4th of July parade or whatever it was, but all of us as little liggers dressed up in our uniforms and marched in the parade down Main Street. And I can remember at the end of the parade, one of my good friends, his feet were hurting really, really bad. And in fact, I think they were bleeding a little bit. And the coach said to him, what are you doing? He had worn his baseball spikes to march in the parade and uh, it just really was not a good situation. But you know, whenever I think about the triumphal entry, and I try to envision it in my mind, I I think of it almost as a parade, if you will. You know, as we're going to look at the the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the city of, of Jerusalem, and as you think about a parade, you know, people usually are lining both sides of the street, and you know, clapping, and cheering, and whatever. And so that's kind of the picture that we have here, the morning with the triumphal entry and the account before us this morning uh, tells us the story of the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and officially presents himself as the Messiah, as the son of God, as the king of Israel. We're going to keep coming back to that phrase, the king of Israel. And so what we see is John chapter 12 through John chapter 20. All of those chapters encompass really six days in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so we see that that this is it. we are in the final week. Really, we we could have gotten taken it back to to last week as well, the the dinner in Bethany uh, to celebrate uh, the raising of Lazarus from dead. So really, we're in the final week of the Lord Jesus Christ's life. And John is going to focus a lot of his gospel, obviously chapters twelve through twenty, on that last week. And beginning next week, we'll see that the, that a good portion of that is private ministry. And in fact, the last night of the Lord's ministry in the upper room with his disciples. So his public ministry pretty much is over, or is going to end today, and then the rest is going to be what we call his private ministry. But by riding into the city of Jerusalem, by presenting himself officially as the Messiah, as the King, he sets into motion a chain of events that is going to quickly lead to what? His death. But his death occurs, and keep this in your minds, at the exact moment that God has ordained. Not that man has ordained, that God has ordained. So this is going to be a day of acclamation. And yet it is also going to be a day that moves swiftly right to his crucifixion. So in some ways, as we read this account and as we think about the triumphal entry, those shouts of acclaim, remember, Hosanna! Those shouts of acclaim kind of seem a little empty to us. They seem a little hollow to us because we know the rest of the story. We know that in, what, six days they're going to be shouting out, crucify him. But this is a day of recognition. This is a day of acclaim. And this is going to be the day when Jesus is hailed as the king. And this day is a very significant day in the plan of God. We know that this event was actually predicted by the prophets. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, that if the, the people would not have shouted out Hosanna, what would have happened? The very stones would have cried out. God was going to have his son acclaimed on this day. And Jesus is king. He is to be acclaimed. He must be acclaimed. And yet, this king is going to be rejected and crucified. We know that. But he is king. And as such, he must be acclaimed. So, as we come to this passage this morning, we want to consider this one who is the king the only king who is worthy to rule and to reign. You know, last week I gave you, if you for those of you who take notes, and one of these days we're going to get back to the notes, but last week I gave you a very brief outline, two points. I'm going to make up for it today. Today we got five, all right? So, uh, by, by the way, Bravo to all of you. You remembered 8.30. At least you acted like you remembered 8.30. Uh, We'll see how the 10 o'clock crew does when they come rolling in at 10.30. But uh, uh, the first point in our outline today is, is simply this. The king acclaimed by the people. The king acclaimed by the people. And that's in the verses that we read for you, verses 12 through 19. As I mentioned to you, it is Sunday of Passover week, if you will. And uh, we saw last week that many of the Jewish pilgrims have already gathered into the city of Jerusalem for the feast. They are gathering there to purify themselves. They are gathering there in preparation for what is to come. We read in verse 17 that some of these people had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 17, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness and their testimony had spread. Can't you imagine it did? I mean, if you saw somebody be raised from the dead, you would be, you know, talk about Facebook blowing up. Never been on Facebook in my life, but I think even I would have known about that. You know, it, it just would have gone through the world. And and they had convinced many other people that this Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. The king. Remember last week we saw that many believed in him, not all, but many, and those many convinced many others that Jesus was the king. And so when they heard that Jesus was on his way into the city, they go out to meet him. You know, I remember when when I was in high school, uh, I, think, I think it was 1976, uh, President Gerald Ford uh, came into the city of Co- uh, Columbus, and I can remember as a family, we went out to the airport to greet him, if you will, with a lot of other people, and, and because that's something, something that we do. Well, here are the, and I, by the way, I got to shake his hand even, and uh, I wouldn't be able to do that today, right? I have to bump elbows with him, but, uh, uh, you know, I I... I uh, here we have Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, and the crowd gathers to see him. And we know the story. They, they, Verse 13, they cut down branches from palm trees, and they go out to greet him. And verse 13 tells us they cry out words from, and it's really Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 where the psalmist says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's our phrase at the end of the verse, the what? King of Israel. The word Hosanna is an important word. It means save now or save we pray. And it is a cry that looks to this king as the deliverer. The one who is going to save his people from their enemies. See, Jesus is king. And he does indeed come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he does come to save now. He does come to deliver his people from their enemies. And as he enters into the city, we see in verse 14 that he is riding On a young donkey. And that actually fulfills another prophecy. It fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And he rides into the city in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Israel. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so uh, Jesus comes fulfilling prophecy. But look at verse 16. His disciples didn't really understand what was going on totally. They didn't really recognize the significance of the event. But I want you to notice specifically in verse 16, they began to understand what this was all about when? When Jesus was glorified. When was he glorified? After his resurrection after his ascension back to heaven, it's like when those things happened, the disciples everything began to click into place. You know, you know uh, we 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 said last week Mary was the only one that seemed to take his death seriously. had the disciples heard about it? Yeah, but it's gone in in one year and right out the other. They, you know, Jesus kept telling them, "I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised, I'm going to be." Raised. And it's like they didn't even hear it. And here, even in the great triumphal entry, even his own disciples really don't get the whole idea of what's going on until they reflect back on it after his resurrection and after his glorification, after his ascension. But even though they didn't even realize it, the king must be acknowledged, right? He must be acclaimed for he is the true sovereign. He is the only one who can deliver his people from their enemies. And so the triumphal entry uh, is is a very important event. Let me just give you one other thought. I I believe the triumphal entry also fulfills one of the greatest prophecies in all of Scripture. And we don't have time to delve into that, but it is the the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks from the book of Daniel. And the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, I believe, are kicked off, are, are started. God's prophetic time clock, in my opinion, uh, it, it started with the Artaxerxes giving the command to, to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And that starts God's clock, if you will, those 70 weeks. And the, the, at the end of the 69th week, Daniel says, the king will be presented and that's what I think occurs right here in Jerusalem, that this ends Daniel's 69th week. And as I understand prophecy, that, that, that means that we have one week left, one seven-year period left, which will be the Great Tribulation. And so we're kind of in a parenthesis, a, 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 a church age, if you will. But I believe the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ fulfills that 69th week of, of Daniel prophecy, but anyways, let's move on. This event recognizes Jesus not only for who he really is, but what we also see happening is that it accelerates the timetable of the religious leaders toward his death. Look at the, the religious leaders in verse 19. They, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Week after week after week, we've seen that the religious leaders want to do what to Jesus? They want to kill him. They, they, they want to get rid of him. And if you remember last week with the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, they say this has to happen now. In fact, we're not only going to kill him, we're going to kill Lazarus as well. But they then made a determination, you know, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to do that during the feast. We're not going to do that during the Passover. There's too many people in Jerusalem. It could become a a, it could become a riot. It become a a crazy scene. You know, the the people think he's and if we go and kill him, man, we could have a real problem on our hands. So we're not going to do it this week. And it's like Jesus said, oh, yeah, you're not. It's not your timetable. It's my timetable. And with the people proclaiming Jesus as the king, the religious leaders are are beginning to realize, hey, things are rolling out of control, if you will. Something has to be done about the situation. Verse 19, the whole world's going after him. Now, is that true? No, but that's how it looks to them. They see all these people out there proclaiming him to be the king, and they say, you know what, we got to do something about this. Folks, Jesus is king. He is sovereign. And even the timing of his own death is in his total control. It's not going to be the religious leaders who determine when he will die. Oh, they think they are doing that. But it is really the king himself who is in absolute control. So the king is acclaimed by the people. Look at the second thing that I want you to see this morning and that is that the king articulates his purpose. The king articulates his purpose. And we see that in verses 20 through 27. It says, "Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to the wor- to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And so here we see in these verses the king articulating his his agenda, if you will, his purpose. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning, from the human viewpoint, from our standpoint, the acclamation of the crowd, the hosannas from the crowd may seem empty and shallow for this king is soon going to be put to death. And his acclamation is going to be short-lived. You know, but we have to understand this entire picture. The king has come to deliver his people from their enemies. The problem is the Jews have the wrong enemy in mind. The Jews sees their enemy as these great Gentile powers. Oh, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to rid us of the Romans. He's going to rid us of the Greeks. He's going to rid us of the Gentiles. He's going to give us freedom. He's going to deliver us from there. But the real enemy is not Rome. The real enemy is sin. The real enemy is hell. The real enemy is Satan and his do- dominion. And, and, and this king has come to Hosanna, save now, He's come to deliver his people now, but this deliverance is not going to be what they expect. And because the real enemy is sin, this deliverance requires, follow along, his death. The death of the Messiah, the death of the king. The king is sovereign, yes. He has come to save now, yes. He has come to deliver his people now, yes. But this deliverance is not what they expected. It's not deliverance from Rome. It's deliverance from sin. And that requires his death. And so that's why we've been telling you week after week after week, Jesus, the king, is not a victim. He is not a victim of an unruly mob who take him to the religious leaders and say, crucify him no, he's not a martyr. He came for this purpose. He comes to willingly lay down his life. And in laying down his life, the king will set his people free from their sin. Now, this sovereign purpose is articulated for us by a group of Greeks who come in and ask to see Jesus. We see that in verses 20 through 22. It's kind of an odd little story that, that these certain Greeks came and they, they, they said to Philip, Hey, we want to, can we, can we possibly see Jesus? Can you get us a, a, a meeting with Jesus? And Philip, you know, Philip goes to Andrew and Andrew goes to Jesus. Well, who are these Greeks? Well, they most likely are Gentile proselytes. And what that means is that they are Gentiles who have abandoned their pagan Gentile religion and they have turned to worship the one true God. And and they have come to Jerusalem now to celebrate the Passover and and they they hear about Jesus and they want to meet Jesus. And, And so they they ask, sir, verse 21, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip goes and gets Andrew and they go talk to Jesus and what's really fascinating to me is Jesus never really answers their request. Instead, he articulates his purpose for coming. He, he doesn't appear to answer their request for a meeting. In fact, as we read the, 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 the rest of the, chat, the, the passage here, the Greeks are never even mentioned again. Now, they may be part of the crowd that's listening, and most probably they are. But instead of responding to the Greeks, uh, the Lord doesn't respond to Jews. He doesn't respond to Gentiles. He responds to all who will one day believe in him and choose to follow him. And let's look at that beginning in verse 23. Jesus, as the sovereign king, speaks of the hour of his glorification and he tells the people, including probably these Greeks, that it must his glorification must come through his death. Look, what he says in verse 23, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. And yet the the Son of Man is going to be glorified not by conquering the Romans, which is what the Jews wanted, not by immediately establishing the kingdom as the people so desperately wanted, but he instead would be glorified by dying. And he describes it this way, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He likens his death to a grain of wheat, a seed, if you will, being planted in the ground. And and I've told you before, I have absolutely no ability to grow anything. But I do understand it a little bit, you know, a a farmer at, at a little bit earlier than this time of the year, but right around this time of the year does what he goes out and he plants his crops. He puts seeds into the ground and in a sense, those seeds die. Right. But in their death, what happens? New life springs up, you know, The corn comes up or wheat comes up or whatever it might be. And, and the Lord's point here is this. I will be glorified, but it's going to be through my death and resurrection. The, the real life, look, look what he says. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates this life in this world will keep it for what kind of life? Eternal life. I don't think he's saying here that we have to hate our life here. I think what he's saying is that the life that's most important. The life that's most important. You know, uh, the, the real life is eternal life. And that can only come as the result of death. The death of the king. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be put away. And the Bible tells me that the penalty for sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And the penalty for sin must then be paid. The death of Jesus Christ, the King, on the cross will bear much fruit by providing salvation or providing eternal life For all who would believe, including us here today. Notice what he says then. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came into the world. Should the king draw back from this hour? Now, now that the hour's you ever had one of those experiences where you've been maybe looking forward to something or maybe even worse, dreading something that was coming? And now the hour's here and you want to do what? Ah, let's just not go through with that. I'm not going to go through with that. You know, the Lord here says, you know, I'm not really looking forward to this. Should I draw back from this? Absolutely not. It's why I came into the world. It's why I came into this world. Knowing that his death was central to God's redemptive plan. Jesus says, yes, my soul's troubled, but I'm not turning back from this hour. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But he goes on to say in that same verse that he, Jesus, despised the shame. And that's why he's troubled here. You know, that's why he's troubled here in, in John 12, 27. Despite that he, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that he came to, to give his life, he understood what kind of death that was going to be. The death on the cross. It was not, he understood the, the suffering. He understood the anguish and really the spiritual anguish as much as anything. But despite all of that, he would not deviate from God's eternal plan of redemption. And that called for him to die as a sacrifice for sin. And so he says at the end of the verse of verse 27, this is the purpose I came. Th- this is why I came. See, that is the king's sovereign purpose and Please, folks, if you if you get nothing else out of this Passover week, if you will, the, the, these next, you know, eight chapters, this is why he came. Jesus Christ is in complete control of this situation. It might not look like it. From our perspective, it looks like the religious leaders are doing doing a horrible thing and uh, that, you know, they have taken him and they are killing him and they are doing a horrible thing, but it is his plan and he is he's calling the shots. He's in complete control. The king is moving forward to his sovereign purpose. He articulates his purpose. Look at the third thing. And this one's a real short one. Aren't you glad you at least get one really short one? The third one is the king being acknowledged by the father. And that's just a couple of verses, verses 28 through 30. He says, father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That would have been amazing, right? But look what happened. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said, man, it's thundering. Others said an angel has spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. The king being acknowledged by the father uh, if there is any remaining question about Jesus being the king, it is dispelled here as the very voice of God the Father himself is heard from heaven speaking in order to attest to the fact that this, this Jesus is the king. The very voice of God declares him to be the king. A- and we see the people might not have understood the words But they knew something pretty important had just happened. The audible answer of God the Father from heaven still conveyed to them a divine affirmation of who this Jesus is. Well, let's go to the fourth one. The king announcing then his triumph in verses 31 through 36. Remember the cry of the crowd, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who comes to triumph over the enemies of his people. And while the crowds who acknowledged him didn't fully understand his sovereign purpose, they did rightly proclaim him Messiah and king. Verse 31, now the ju- is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. You know, again, while the crowds acknowledged him as king. They didn't fully understand his sovereign purpose. They kind of got caught up in the crowd, if you will. They got caught up in what was going on. They rightly proclaimed him as the messiah and king, but they have a totally different agenda for their king in mind. You know, they, they, they had the agenda of overthrowing Rome and, and that wasn't his agenda, but they did rightly acclaim him as the, being the king. And the real enemy was not Rome. The real enemy was not any human power. The real enemy, verse 31, is a spiritual enemy. This is a spiritual conflict. And the king now announces, I have won the battle. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out. Vanquished. The king is man's deliverer. And this wicked kingdom under the leadership of Satan is to be judged, is to be defeated, is to be conquered. It is to be cast out. But not in the way the crowd thinks. The triumph again, verse 34, comes through his death and his resurrection We see that actually in verse 32, I'm lifted up. And the people don't understand that in verse 34. And they say, how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? You see, they were not willing to accept the the idea that the Messiah was going to die. You know, based on Old Testament passages where the Messiah is called the son of man, they assumed that he would come to defeat all of God's enemies and establish a kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness. Is he going to do that? Absolutely, but not now. At his second coming, he's going to do that. That's exactly what he's going to do at his second coming. But the crowd also overlooked the clear teaching of other Old Testament passages of Scripture, which clearly indicated that the Messiah must die on his first advent. He must come and die as a sacrifice for sin. Isaiah 53. Many other passages. And that's why Jesus came and the enemy is going to be defeated. And all people, meaning people of all nations, will be drawn to this king who is lifted up. You see, the king's sovereign purpose is to give his life as a sacrifice for his people. In being lifted up on the cross, the king triumphs over man's enemy and he draws men then to himself. Notice how he describes it in verse 35. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness doesn't know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. You know, the the light dispels man's darkness. And Jesus Christ, he's already told us in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He has dispelled man's darkness. He's the hope of man. He is the Messiah. He's the king. You know, during that time period, they didn't have what we have, streetlights and, you know, electric lights and even all those kind of things where we can go out at night and we can see and we can walk safely. Those people didn't have that. So they only traveled during the daylight hours when they could see. And Jesus is comparing uh, those who failed to listen to his warning to travelers who are caught out after nightfall, after the sun has gone down, after the darkness comes, and they are lost in pitch blackness of a starless, moonless night. You ever been out when there are no stars, no moon, and you're out? in the... I remember when I was at New Life. Back in the early 80s, I lived in the house with the Donaldsons and the lodge was up the, the road. And if you've ever been up there, it's, it's kind of a, a country road or whatever. And it was pitch black. There was no light. There was no moon. There was, and I didn't have a flashlight and I had to go from the house to the lodge. And you couldn't hardly, I, I couldn't even hardly see where the road was. And of course, then you start to think everything's around. Whoa, whoa. You know, I was just, I was almost lost, trying to get up to that lodge. And for some reason, there were no lights on in the light. You know, it was And sometimes it's almost like you're lost. And Jesus says, that's what it's like for people who are not following me. The only way for you to avoid being lost in spiritual darkness is while you still had the light, me, believe. Put your faith in me. You know, as we gather today, it's not Palm Sunday. But we should join with the crowd in shouting out Hosanna in praise to the king who has come to save us. He's the only one who is worthy of our praise. He's the only one who is worthy of our worship, of our acclamation. He is the king and he has triumphed over our enemy. He has given us new life. And we need to close But very quickly, let's look at the fifth thing. And that is Jesus, the king, accepted or rejected. And we see that in verses 37 through 50. And we're not going to really walk uh, down through these verses because of time's sake. But in these verses, we see that this acclamation must be a personal choice. We must individually decide, are we going to accept the king or are we going to reject him? We see that many did not believe, verse 37. Many did not believe in him. Even though he did many signs, the people refused to believe that he was the Messiah. You know, since the miracles could not be refuted, there was no excuse for their unbelief. They simply hardened their hearts against the truth. They refused to believe. Look at verses 42 and 43. Some did believe. But they were afraid to openly proclaim him because they wanted the approval of men. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed. verse 42 in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Is that genuine belief? No. I know who he is, and you may be here today. I know who he is, but I'm more concerned with doing the things I want to do. I'm more concerned with what other people think of me. I'm more concerned with what this person says than following the king. Here these people are really, you know, we kind of say on the doorstep of heaven, if you will. They believe that Jesus is the king, but they're more concerned with what other people are doing and saying. Many didn't believe, and God hardened their hearts. Many believed, but they were afraid to proclaim him openly. And in verses 44 through 50, we see that many did acclaim him. Acclaiming the king is really acknowledging God's plan and purpose. And as a result, those who believe now have eternal life. And I know we kind of blew through those verses very quickly. Uh, but I I just want us to bring bring us to this point because we need to close. What have you done with the king? See, he is the king. Whether you believe it or not even, he is the king. But your eternal destiny will be determined by whether you accept or reject this king. Have you followed him? Have you put your faith and trust in what he did for you on the cross? See, when he died on the cross, he died for your sins. And the only way for you to have eternal life is to put your faith and trust in him and what he did. It's not joining a church. It's not being here on a Sunday morning. Those are wonderful things, but that doesn't get us into heaven. It's not being baptized. It's not taking communion. It's not teaching Sunday school. It's not doing good things. No, it's putting my faith and trust in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that. And what does Jesus say? When you put your faith and trust in me, I give to you eternal life. Do you have eternal life today? You can only have it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just uh, the, the story of the triumphal entry. Lord, I thank you for uh, just the, the, the fact that you were in complete control and are in complete control. You are sovereign. You are the king. And as king, you came to defeat our enemies. You came to save now. Hosanna. But you did so through your death and your resurrection. You defeated sin and death and hell. And Lord, as we gather here some 2,000 years later, salvation is still offered to us. And all we need to do is put our faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray for those who are here. I pray for those that are watching this morning as well. That Lord, if, if they have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that today they would do that. Thank you for coming and dying for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.